scripture reading is from Acts 13, 32 through 39. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is uh, a new series we just kind of started last week, but we're kind of officially starting this week. It's talking about our values at Stonehouse Church. Um, and so, uh, again, if you're kind of newer with us, this is a great time uh, to kind of understand the heart of Stonehouse Church. Um, and if you've been around a while, this is a nice refresher for us to understand what is it that we expect the gospel to bear fruit in our lives? How is that going to look? Uh, and we talked about last week the transformation of the heart, which is only possible through the, through the work of Jesus Christ because the old covenant that God made with man, man could never keep, but God himself kept that covenant uh, and made a new covenant with mankind and fulfilled the covenant by sending Jesus' his son to do the work that we could not do for ourselves uh, and to die on the cross to pay the penalty for us not doing the work that we should have done and to raise Jesus from the dead to give us life and, uh, and, and eternal blessing from God alone that we could never attain uh, by ourselves. And through that work, he's given us new hearts, and through those new hearts, we express uh, the, the some of the attributes of God, the very nature of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit working out through us uh, in these renewed hearts, creates uh, amongst us uh, kind of a, a, a feel, um, an essence, um, if you will, uh, kind of a, a sense of who God is as we together experience this newness of heart and the life of Jesus being lived out through us. Now we always make exception to the fact that we don't do this perfectly and that's one of the great delights of the church of Jesus Christ is to consistently, continually and humbly say no we didn't do it right and we're not doing it right but by God's grace we're being purified and being pushed continually into uh, the kind of living that would honor God and glorify uh, Jesus' son. And so we understand this kind of uh, sense of feel in a lot of ways as humans, right? You, you probably understand this sense of feel when it comes to your family, like this, this ethos, right? There's, there's a certain, hmm, there's a certain conduct sometimes that you have to try to put on a little bit when you're with some parts of your family compared to other parts of your family, perhaps, because of the kind of ethos or the, the, the sense or the feel of that family. You don't want to step on toes. You don't want to tread too, uh, uh, too heavily upon thin ice. And so sometimes you've got to adjust things for family. And so sometimes this feel, this sense, it, it permeates our experience with our families. If you've been married, you understand this because you had one feel in your family, and then you went to that first Thanksgiving with your other family, and like all those red-faced, foot-in-the-mouth moments happened for you, you know, where you're like, oh, this is just me, probably. This is just me. Ignore me as I tell you my sad story. So like, you know, you're like saying all the things, you're like, oh, oh, we don't say those things here. Mm shame on me, you know, and then you get to talk on the way home, right, like, 
ladies, right? The talk. Like, you need to understand my mother, right? Got it? So there's that sense, there's that feel. Uh, and, and, and a lot of that is because of kind of what's valued and what's cherished and what's held high in one family uh, compared to another family, right? Like my family, I had a, a father who ran his own business since I was three years old, and I had a mother who worked part-time and constantly tried creating other businesses on the side. Like she wasn't born in the wrong generation. She needed this day and age because she would have all these like little Facebook things, blog things, selling things, Etsy things, and whatnot. Uh, but back then she just did it like the hard way like with calling people and sending mailers and stuff. And it was like constantly. So when I came home from school, it was like dad was over at the drafting table watching baseball uh, or football or hockey, if God was good enough to give us that moment. Um, and, and he would be drafting the plans for the next construction project that he was going to do. Or he'd be sitting at his desk with the roll top, solid old oak desk with this cool roll top thing. And he'd be punching numbers and paging through his checkbook and doing the bills and all this stuff. That was the, the, the kind of the ethos of my family. It was all about working hard pretty much all the time, right? And so whenever I was in an environment where that type of a thing wasn't valued, I had to, I had to, to understand that's not every family, right? That's not every understanding. A lot of people have the freedom to like sit on a couch and enjoy television instead of work when they get home. And that's really cool and really gracious. Um, and so that, that, kind of experience is what we're talking about as far as the ethos and the feel and the values of a church is that we hope because of God's grace at work in our hearts that he would be creating people who value particular things so that there's a sense, an ethos, uh, a feel when you join us, when you meet us on the street, when you come into our homes or into our worship spaces and gathering, that you start to feel and sense certain values are elevated, certain things are prioritized, certain um, uh, Beliefs are, are expected and, and kind of communicated in certain ways that sometimes even certain uh, elements of language or dress or kind of religious conduct are, are either not experienced or experienced because of what we value. And as we dig into this, the primary place for us to begin is to look at what is the foundation of all these values, and that is to look at the gospel. So our values spring from the new hearts that God has given us, and also, along with those new hearts, he's giving us new desires to live out in our time, in our day, in this place, so long as it's up to us to, to live these things out so that the truth of Jesus is experienced in a world who's largely dismissed him as irrelevant to them anymore. And so to clarify, this, this series isn't about our beliefs, actually, okay? You can find our beliefs or our, our, our statement of faith on our website, and those beliefs are in line with uh, confessional, orthodox, evangelical Christianity, okay? And so we don't, we don't uh, trail off from what's been historically believed in the, um, uh, in the church for, for centuries. And so our statement of faith, you can find that. Um, along with uh, our doctrinal distinctives, which we also aren't speaking about this week. 
our doctrinal distinctives have to do with being um, credo-baptist, for instance, that we, uh, we practice believer baptism. Um, the way that we look at the sovereignty of God, that we view his uh, ultimate and triumphant sovereignty in all things. Um, the way that we look at gender, the way that we look at the church, the way that we look at the ordinances of the church. All of these things are uh, listed out in our doctrinal distinctives, and that's also not what we're talking about in this series. What we're talking about in this series can very clearly just be said, these are values. Okay. And our first value, uh, well, actually all of our values are kind of uh, being stated in a way that uh, we're highlighting our value over and above the anti-value, okay? And it's just a, a way of clarity that we're going to be stating these values to kind of help us further understand exactly what we're talking about. So David, give me that first slide. What Our value, our first value, it looks like this. It's the gospel over religion. And so when we just simply write it quickly, it looks like that, just gospel over religion, okay, the little greater than sign, right? And so that's what it looks like when we write it down, and if you were to say it, we simply are saying we value the gospel over religion, okay? We value the gospel over religion. And in a way, what we're saying here is that we value gospel centrality. We'll dig into that in a minute. But we are also saying why we value gospel centrality, and that is because it is the nature of the human heart to actually value religion. And so we value the gospel over religion because it is the comparison between the two. Uh, it is in the comparison between the two that we find clarity um, about what the good news of Jesus Christ is. Now, when I say religion, I like to clarify this. When I say religion, I'm not just simply talking about Buddhism or Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or Christianity, right? When I say religion, what I'm actually talking about is any attempt of mankind to establish worldly significance and or eternal security through these things, personal piety, sacred activity, moral achievements, or religious rites, Okay, so when I say religion, I'm talking about man's efforts by themselves in their own strength through their own conduct and construction to, to establish themselves as credible and worthy and valuable and good before God. Okay, that's what I mean when I say religion. And we need to understand that when I say religion, it's, on it's not only religious people that are religious. Okay. We have a contra-religious religious world on the rise. It has been for, for hundreds of years, right? America's finally on the side of being uh, post-Christendom, right? Where we're beyond the construct of Christendom, which is just the, the presumed and assumed and established uh, expectation of Christianity as a norm, right? That's how Europe was for ages, and that's how America was established as a, a kind of a, a religious freedom place with a priority towards kind of Judeo-Christian value, and we're seeing in our day an erosion of that foundation uh, through naturalism, through, um, through all sorts of, of false religions, through the acceptance of all religions, through the statements that no religion meant, like all these things are eroding that foundation that are... That, kind of by and large Western civilization had understood for, for a long, long time. And so that's, that's eroding. But 
we need to understand that that's not a, an, an erasing of religion. It's simply a changing of religion, right? And everybody who says, I'm not religious, is actually religious based on a religion of self or a religion of culture or a religion of work or a religion of money or a religion of other values and so on and so forth. So in our day and in our time, there is not a, a separation between the irreligious and the religious. There is just simply the what religion. Do you follow the religion of self? That you and your highest good are the ultimate aim of your entire life. <laughs> That's a religion. Because it brings with it a commitment. It brings with it certain types of values and certain beliefs and certain systems of understanding the world. It in and of itself is a religion that says, I am the ultimate good. I am the ultimate great. Right? Or money is, or family is, or you name it politics is or we name we, we live under this kind of false assumption that it's either religion or irreligion not understanding that all of life is some sort of an attempt to establish our own significance to establish our personal worthiness right to throw off the pressure by pursuing things that would bring ease all of these Pursuits of mankind are ways of expressing there's some way that I must attain something of significance, right? And so we say the gospel, that we value the gospel over religion because religion pushes us into a scenario of either pride or despair. We talk about that all the time here and we understand that that's the inevitable result of religion. We'll get into that in a minute as well. And so if we're going to say we value the gospel over religion, the primary thing that we want to understand is the gospel, right? The secondary thing that we want to understand is what is it that is religion and why is it that the gospel is better or greater than or more valuable to us than religion. And so what is the gospel and what is this kind of gospel centrality that we're talking about anyway. Well, I'm really glad you asked, <laughs> even though you didn't, um, because the gospel is everything to us as we look at scripture and we see the story of God and the story of us. And so actually on our website it says this, the gospel is all about Jesus. His story awakens us as the, truth, as the truth of all things is fully revealed through his life, death, and resurrection. This is a story of grace. It's a story of redemption. What was once created in perfection, bringing glory to God and fulfillment to man, has been broken by sin. But sin is not the final word. Grace is. Because in love for his broken creation, God sent his one and only Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life for us and to die a brutal death in our place and he rose him from the grave for our eternal security and so through Jesus we have forgiveness of sin and are restored to right relationship with our creator this story is filled with hope it speaks the truth to our hearts as it shapes how we see God in ourselves in our city and the whole world the gospel will always be our essential narrative and the foundation of all that Stonehouse Church experiences, pursues, and declares. To put it very briefly, 
in quotes on the board for you, the gospel is the good news of what God has graciously done for sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of you may know this, some of you may not. Our church is connected to a church planting network called the Acts 29 Network in which gospel centrality is a significant value as well. On the Acts 29 website, they further expound on the gospel by saying that the gospel is centered in Christ, that it is the foundation for the life of the church and is our only hope for eternal life. The gospel is not proclaimed if Christ's penal substitutionary death and bodily resurrection are not central to our message. That's just simply a way of saying Jesus had to die for our sins in our place. And he was risen from that death so that we truly might have life. It goes on to say this gospel is not only the means by which people are saved, but also the truth and power by which people are sanctified. It is the truth of the gospel that enables us to genuinely and joyfully do what is pleasing to God and to grow in progressive conformity to the image of Christ. The salvation offered in this gospel message is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No ordinance, ritual, work, or any other activity on the part of man is required in order to be saved. And so I want you to hear the gospel. I want it to be clear and bold and full and real. And so if you're a note taker and you've got the pen and paper out or you're jotting things down on your phone, I want to ask you, just put that down for a minute. I want you to hear. I want you to listen. I want you maybe even to imagine, to picture, to experience the gospel. What's so significant about the gospel is its beginning. The beginning of the gospel is God. The beginning of the gospel is God. The words of this book open with, in the beginning, God, right? Propaganda, the rapper says, the greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told God. Yes, God. The maker and giver of life, and by life I mean all the... All in any manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can't and can be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God, and all of it, his handiwork. When we say God, we're talking about the eternal God, the eternal God who had no beginning and will have no ending, the eternal God that has always existed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, in perfect, harmonious, glorious, loving community. God who has never had need for anything. God who has never lacked in love, never lacked in creativity, never lacked in power, never lacked in knowledge and wisdom. He has always been and always will be everything that he is apart from all that he's created. There is nothing ever been like God or ever will be like God. Unique and special and holy and glorious. And no human that is alive now, nor any human that has ever lived, has ever seen God fully. Because the glory of God, the power of God, the weight of His splendor is beyond our capacity to behold. And this God, who had no need for anything, created everything. 
Some people would like to tell you that God was lonely up in heaven and so he made people to be his playmates and that's baloney. God's never been lonely. That's the significance of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit in perfect, harmonious, glorious relationship. Unity, unbroken since the beginning of time, God. And out of the abundance and the spiraling and the centrifugal force of his love, the world was created. And the pinnacle of that world, mankind himself, man and woman, created what? In the very image of God, in the likeness of God, to carry out the glory of God on the earth that was created by God. And so the gospel begins with God, and it moves quickly into the reality of what he created. That God created everything that is. And in this creation... He made a world of utter perfection. In God's creation, the glory of God was revealed in a functioning, perfect world that worked harmoniously and gloriously for his glory and the enjoyment of the people that he made to dwell on it. And this is a world that you and I long for in the depths of our soul. This is the world that makes us go, why? Why is it not like that? It's what we hope for. It's what we long for. It's what we know should be but isn't. And it's a world we've never truly experienced, the world in perfection. The concept of shalom in the scriptures is that all systems and all peoples and all nature and all created order all of it functioning perfectly in this wonderful conglomeration of God's goodness spread throughout everything and everywhere. God made the world like this, utterly uninterrupted, seamless unity between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and His creation, man and woman and world. You've never seen this world. I've never seen this world. But it's how God originally created, and it was so resplendent in all of its glory that God stood back and said, it's very good. And upon its creation, he rested, and he looked down upon all that he had made, and he was utterly satisfied. This world that God created was a world without hurt. It was a world without disappointment. It was a world in which every expectation was fulfilled. Can you imagine? It was a world with no thorn. It was a world with no attack. It was a world with no decay. It was a world without sin. And there's that word, sin. Because the gospel, though it is good news, it also contains some very bad news. And the very bad news within the good news of the gospel is though this world was perfect in its order and its creation and its splendor, the highest of the created order, mankind himself, decided after being tempted in the garden by the serpent who lies, they decided what you and I would have decided and that was, God as ruler is not enough for me. I want to be a ruler. God who has decided everything that is good 
and everything that is right, I don't think he's decided well enough. I'd now like to decide what is good and what is right for me. This is the great temptation that would have befallen anybody else but did befall Adam and Eve, and they succumbed to it immediately. They succumbed to the idea of being self-ruled. They thought there was a lot going on for them, but they thought God was holding back something. That thing that they thought God was holding back was the ability to decide for themselves what was right, what was wrong, what was good, what was evil. And so they succumbed to the temptation. They were deceived into thinking that God was not in fact good and that his desires for them were not complete and utterly trustworthy. And so they took that fruit. They rebelled against the perfect, loving, watchful care of the one who created them. And in so doing, like us, they shattered every good and perfect gift that God had given them. In the rebellion of sin was the unleashing on both themselves and on the world the destruction that sin would unleash. And so, therefore, God in his perfect holiness and in his complete justice, he separated our first parents from paradise. We need to understand there was an element of grace here where God put a blockade on the garden so that Adam and Eve could no longer take and eat from the fruit of eternal life because God's desire was for them to not dwell in eternity in brokenness. God did not want them to grab hold of eternal life in the state of sin. He did not want that to continue forever and so he thrust them away from the garden and death was introduced into the life of this world. And when he expelled them from the garden, they began the long journey that all mankind has been on, and that is to try and find their way back to Eden. This is when the first marital argument took place. The fruit of this marriage produced the first sibling rivalry. That word didn't exist in God's good created world. So sibling rivalry turned into envy and jealousy and hatred and murder in one generation. That's how devastating the work of sin was in God's perfect creation. It went to utter unbroken unity between a man and a wife, to division and envy and strife between a brother and a brother. And the very first generation from Adam and Eve experienced murder. The worst of all death. The killing of a brother. This too is where disease comes from. Sin introduced decay into the world. Natural disasters, which I wish we'd stop calling natural because they're not natural. They're unnatural. <laughs> they weren't in the world before sin animosity and abuse, racism and apathy, parental abandonment and selfishness, our identity issues and addiction, those thorns that constantly poke in your side as you try to work. These are all post-sin, post-fall realities, disorder and chaos. My worst enemy, cancer. 
Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. One of the realities of sin is that it is both action and attitude. That it is the things we do and it is also the people we are. The infection of sin that invaded the hearts of Adam and Eve was passed down as a generational curse from every, uh, through every generation that has ever lived. We learn sin from those who raise us, and we are born in sin. David said, I was conceived in iniquity. Right? This is why you don't have to teach a kid to say no. This is why you don't have to teach a kid to say mine. Those are some of the first words. Because they're already bent. They're already broken. That's the permeation of sin, and it affects this world. It affects everything that's going on. And none of it was according to God's original design. But God's creation was broken by God's creatures the very ones who were supposed to rightfully steward all that he made decided instead to try and grasp for power and make a world of their own. And God, since that day, even before that day, was enacting a plan to redeem the broken people who sin against him. You see, in that very first act, we see a glimpse of what God was going to do about sin. Because Adam and Eve do what? They hide. They run and hide from the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-perceiving, all-wise God, right? Good try. It's like hide-and-seek with the kindergartners. It's like, no, no. The bush isn't enough to hide you, Adam, right? And what did God do? He came to Adam. He pursued them. He said, Adam, where are you? Not because he didn't know where Adam was, but because he wanted to wake Adam up to where he was. Adam, where are you? You're hiding from the only thing that you've ever known. You're running away. Why? Adam and Eve tried to start a new clothing line out of fig leaves, and it didn't work. And so God instead slayed an animal and gave them hides of fur. An act that declared that in order to cover your nakedness, in order to cover your shame, something must die so that you might be clothed. It spoke of the cross, right? And God in his confrontation with Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden after the fall said to the serpent, what? There's going to be one born of a woman who will come and he will bruise your head though you will bruise his heel. The first mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that a Savior's on the way. It's in Genesis 3, right? The proclamation of God's desire to do something about it and not just sit and let it happen is all the way back in Genesis. And so all of redemptive history, from Adam to Abraham and the making of the first covenant, from Abraham to Moses and the creation of a people known by God and known as God's people, from Moses to David and the establishment of a kingdom on this earth to represent God, from David to exile and the purification of the temple and from the exile to the prophetic silence 
and the tension of longing, the stuff we talk about at Advent when the world lay in darkness waiting and longing and hoping for an intervention. Desperate for the coming of redemption which was initiated in the birth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, who is and was the eternal son, is born a man. Okay? Don't let anybody fool you that that was the beginning of Jesus. It was not the beginning of Jesus. Jesus has no beginning. Father, Son, Spirit, in the beginning, God, and Jesus became a man. Jesus, who always was, took on flesh and became like us. Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching, Jesus' gospel and Jesus' healings, all of these things finally showed us what real humanity could and should be like. The proclamations of Jesus were in uh, in, uh, and opposed to the proclamations of religion at the time. The works of Jesus were works against the brokenness of nature that the world was experiencing in his time, right? The relationships that Jesus established with the least and the lost and the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the common fishermen and the religious zealots, the pursuit that he had of others showed us the perfect picture of what God has done in response to our sin, that he's engaged with us, that he's moved toward us that he's passionately pursued rescue of us. This glorious work was shown perfectly in the life of Jesus. Everything that we had wondered what God would look like, we see in Jesus. We see utter and perfect power, yet humility and grace in a way that's never been seen before. We see the ability to walk on water, to call diseases out and make them end, to cast devils aside so that the kingdom of God might reign, and yet Jesus would kneel and talk with kiddos. This was the humble servant, the meek and mild king of the universe, come to show us what is God really like, and has he left us? Has he given up on us? Has he said, you tried hard and you stink, you failed, so screw you. No! <laughs> he said, I'm here and I'm near and I love you. In Christ, the promised redemption that was spoken of since Genesis 3 and retold again to Moses, to Abraham, to David, to the prophets, that was proclaimed, a Savior is coming. Restoration will be on this earth one, once more. Jesus is this glorious redemption. And we see in Jesus the finished work of God's salvation for us in our place for his glory. The centrality of the gospel for us as a church exists in the continual declaration that Jesus paid it all. Religion and its proclamation to you is there's a debt. You better pay it all. 
And why we value the gospel over religion is because we understand the debt is unpayable and that God isn't standing there just waiting for us to get it done. Right? The thing I love about Florida is Maseratis and Teslas and Ferraris. All the cars I never saw as a kid in Minnesota because of the decay of salt on the road, nobody owned one. Or maybe they brought it out for two weeks in summer. Can you imagine having one of those vehicles worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and taking it for a test drive and bumping into a stoplight and going, uh, uh, I don't really have the money to pay. Um, but I'll tell you what, tomorrow's Labor Day. I'll get time and a half, so I'll give you the half. I'll start there, right? Be like a half. I'll start there, and I promise I'll, I'll pay you for the Maserati, right? I'll pay you for the fry. I'll get it, you know what I mean? Because Christmas is right around the corner, you know? Like Walmart's putting out the decorations already, and so it's right around the corner, and I'll get a Christmas bonus, and I promise when the Christmas bonus comes, I'll give you the Christmas bonus, right? And I'll, I'll work this off, I promise, man. Like, I'll get to it. Okay, I've got some stuff. I was going to sell in a garage sale or, 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 you know, I can make these things and, and I can sell them on Etsy for like $75 and, and I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you most of that. I'll give you most of that. That'll, that'll work, right? I'll get, I'll get this debt paid back to you. I owe you all this money and I'll pay you this little bit. That's what religion says to us. You owe a debt to God and you by your own work, with your own toil, with your own hands. You can pay it back. So get to work with your piety and with your moral duties. Go be better, right? Make sure your good things outweigh your bad things because then, yeah, then God will take you home. That'll, that'll be all good, you know, right? That's the pressure of religion and the finished work of Jesus says it was on him. It was on his shoulders. You ruined the car and he stepped up to the plate and he paid it all. You're free from the obligation because of Jesus' work for you. That's in our text, Acts 13, 38 through 39. This is a sermon from Paul, one of the early proclamations of the gospel. Acts is filled with these. If you haven't read it, I encourage you. We preach the gospel because it's what Jesus gave his apostles to preach. Okay? Again and again, you'll see Peter and Stephen and Paul proclaim the gospel. He says this in Acts 13, 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, meaning Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything uh, from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul's saying, you think that you can earn your righteousness under the law of Moses. You can get cleaned up enough. You can conduct yourself good enough. You can follow enough duty and be right before God. You can be justified before God with your own deeds. And the gospel says, no, you cannot attain your own freedom. Your freedom was given to you by Christ. It is all in his work. When he declared on the cross, it is finished. That didn't just mean my life is finished. That meant the work is finished. 
And so whatever we do as we look at the scriptures, as we proclaim the truth of God to this day and this age, we are always looking to and permeated by the truth of this it is finished work of Jesus so that we would not continue to strap on our shoulders the heavy burden of religious duty. The it is finished of Jesus is resplendent and glorious. Greg Gilbert says this, in other words, there is a way for human beings to be counted righteous before God instead of unrighteous, to be declared innocent instead of guilty, to be justified instead of condemned, and it has nothing to do with acting better or living a more righteous life. It comes, quote, apart from the law. It comes by grace alone, through faith alone. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in the trespasses of our sins, that we were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. We all lived there once. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. By our own nature, we're children of wrath, but God, Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The power of the gospel at work in the hearts of mankind is enacted not through activity, but through faith. It is too crazy sometimes to conceive or conceptualize the reality of what's going on in the gospel. Just a minute ago when we were singing, I walked up to Aaron, my dear brother, I put my hand on his shoulder and I said to him, you're completely spotless right now. There are no blemishes in your heart as you stand right now perfect in the presence of God? Have you ever felt, truly felt perfect? The sense that there is nothing else left to do? That you are completely embraced and accepted? That's what's true of you in Jesus. You stand before the only one who sees every single nook and cranny of your heart. He's the only one that can see that, God. And because of Jesus, he declares of you, my beloved, my clean one, spotless, I cherish you. There is nothing else more lovable than you. 
your past, I know it. I know the depths of the darkness probably more than you even know. And right now, because of Jesus, I take you as my own. I adopt you as my son, as my daughter. I've put my name on you like a brand on your heart. Your current struggle, I, I know it. I know that thing you keep going back to like a dog to its vomit. You know in your mind full well how it continues to erode your life, to break down your relationships, to riddle you with guilt. I know it, says God. I know it more than you know it. It is more heinous to me than it is to you because I am utter perfection and perf perfect glory and holiness. I know the stain of that thing that's so hard for you to beat, right? And your mind. Presently, currently, I love you. Actively, I love you. Relentlessly, I love you. I treasure you. I do not want you to be far from me. So I slayed my only son to get rid of the divide and to welcome you home. Your future, that's confusing. Might be dark, might be void of hope, might be scary. Maybe you think even it's doomed. All that that you cannot see, I see, says God. All that that mystifies you and keeps you awake at night, I see, I know. All of the pending failures and shortcomings, all of the mistakes you'll make, I know. And yet, currently, I am actively pursuing you to make you new, to make you mine, to make you lovely, to form you into the image of Jesus. Every failure is forgiven. Every sin is wiped clean because of Jesus' it-is-finished work on the cross. This is the gospel. It comes to you as a proclamation of something that has been done. We like to say it like this. We, we were like a captive people in a walled city, trembling in fear because of an invading army. Our food was running out. Our water supply was cut off. We were starving. We were dirty. We were tired. We were afraid, and we had no hope of rescue. And what happened to us is that a king from another kingdom slayed the enemy army in the valley before our gates. 
and the proclamation of the good news, the evangelion, as the Greek word states, was a message of something that has been accomplished. A messenger, an evangelion, someone who brought good news in that Greco-Roman world would have been like somebody coming from a completed battle, running via horseback into our city to state a new reality for us, and that is the army's gone. The oppressor is eradicated. The danger is erased, and freedom is yours. That's what it's like to hear the good news of Jesus. It is a work that has been completely done for us that we could not do for ourselves. And so the gospel being valued over religion means we continue to proclaim all that hope and all that good news over and above the bad news of you've got work to do. You see, because religion is just simply a list of duties and obligations and never-ending pressures for you to take care of in your own strength. The gospel, rather, is good news to delight in. It's a new reality to find ourselves liberated through. The gospel is the it-is-finished rest of Jesus. You see, religion fences you in. It limits you. It stagnates you. It puts boundaries on you. It puts chains on you. And the gospel brings life. The gospel opens our eyes to a whole new way. It is vitality and abundance in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the very living, breathing, vibrant, beautiful, and matchless person of Jesus Christ. And we proclaim it day in and day out and week in and week out because it is the greatest hope for our soul. And listen, the gospel is not simply for pre-Christians. Okay? The gospel doesn't just simply mean that we kind of tell everybody, okay, you can come to Jesus now, and that's the gospel. The gospel is what you need, is what I need, no matter how long we've walked with Christ. Right? I'm 39 years old right now, and when I was... 17, I finally, truly, utterly, gloriously beheld the gospel. I think I knew religion for a time, but at that point it changed everything for me, and so for 20 years, I've needed the gospel. You guys, I can't even tell you how much I needed the gospel this week. I needed to know that it was okay, that I was tired, and I couldn't do it anymore. Because Jesus did it for me. And I had nothing left to prove. And no one to freaking impress. That's the gospel for me now. And you need the gospel for you now. You need to know that Jesus died. And you need to know that Jesus is enduring your death to bring you life. You need to know that even though that sin nags at you, it will not separate you from the love of Christ that was given for you once and for all at the cross. That through faith and believing in Jesus that you have total new life in him. You need to know the gospel when you fail to obey Jesus like you should. When you fail to live the life that you should. When you fail to preach the gospel like you should. When you fail to love your spouse like you should. When you fail to actively raise your child with integrity and holiness and patience like you should. 
You need the gospel when you're a worker and it feels like your work is worthless. You need the gospel. You need the gospel when somebody near you is sick and dying. You need the gospel when you're going to get sick and when you're going to die. Because you're going to need in that day when you're so weak that someone's been strong enough for you. And that he's not letting you go. No matter how hard it is. No matter how alone you feel. No matter how abandoned you're tempted to say you are. You'll need to know in that day that the closeness of Jesus is not based on your activity, but rather on his. You could be paralyzed and blind and incapable of any activity for anybody. And the gospel will still be true for you. That it is finished. And listen, a people who are enamored with this good news, who are clamoring day by day to hold on to what's true, a people's hearts that have been humbled by knowing we have no right to stand in the presence of God apart from the right that Jesus gives us. A people like that, that value that, are a different people than this world has ever seen when they encounter religion. Because a people like that can look at anybody and say, it's not hopeless. <laughs> I know it's not hopeless. Because I was hopeless. I know that it's real and it's enduring because I've nearly given up back then and back then and back then and now. <laughs> and God has endured. A people who get that grace is everything learn and are able to give grace. Right? to welcome the lost and wayward children, to say it's not up to you to do some kind of dance or get down some kind of lingo or put on some kind of garb. It's not up to you to pretty yourself up before the creator of the universe. And guess what? You can't by yourself and your own efforts find joy and fulfillment in yourself. But there's good news the one who obtained all these things is ready to give it to you and to make it yours. And so the gospel is central to all that we say and do. Christian, you need to hear the gospel. We will never tire of telling you that and we will never tire of welcoming, welcoming you into the free grace and gift of God. This is why we can talk about and be open about our failings, right? This is why I can stand before you and not put on a show about how perfect of a pastor I am, right? Because if you've been here more than five minutes, you know that I'm not. And I delight in that because I'm still his son. This is why we can come to one another, to trusted brothers and trusted sisters and say, 
man, what a heavy week of failure I've had. What a beautiful place of rest where you can walk into this place with a terrible performance record all week long and come and find the same good news is true today as was true last Sunday, as was true the Sunday before that, that you didn't need to have a perfect week to get here. You didn't even need a perfect morning, yo. You could just walk in all scraggly. Jesus did enough for you for you to really come as you are. And that's a cliche term that a lot of churches want to use, and I pray it's true in as many places as possible by the Spirit of God. But oh, might he have mercy to make it true for us. You're welcome here. This is good news too if you're a doubter or a seeker. If you doubt this whole Jesus church Bible thing, you need to hear the gospel. And you need to hear that we're going to fail as we try to hold it up. And you need to hear that you're welcome to come and be failures with us so that you might see the perfect king who's done the work for us. So if you're unimpressed with the gospel, I'm sorry we're not going to stop. I'm not sorry. You're going to need to hear it again and again and again and see it for all of its resplendent glory. If you want some other message from the Bible other than the gospel, you're not going to hear it. It's not going to be proclaimed here. And if that's what you want, be wary. Hardness of heart is sinking in and turning your heart from the only true hope that we have. If you're bored with the gospel or if you're looking for more than the gospel, I love you, but look elsewhere because we have nothing more. We have nothing more exciting or more true or more glorious to proclaim to you. And the good news is if you are enthralled with the gospel, if you're taken by the gospel, if the gospel is still surprising to you, if it's still that too-good-to-be-true message, then, then it's yours. It's taking root. It's growing and producing fruit in you. If the gospel is captivating to you, then you're believing it. That means you're really seeing it. Because guess what? It is too good to be true, and it's true. <laughs> it's glorious. Right now, you are one with God, your creator, because of Jesus Christ. Right now. And that changes everything. Let's pray. God, please help us recognize and turn from religion and fall upon your grace as we hear the gospel news. Our Father, we... We know, we know we don't deserve what we've got from you. This grace, this favor, this adoption, this restored relationship, we didn't earn it with our deeds. 
We weren't born into it with some spiritual pedigree. We haven't achieved it by outweighing our bad deeds with good deeds. It's been given. And God, we need the gift of the gospel to captivate our hearts because we feel how prone we are to wander and look elsewhere and sit under condemnation or guilt or in pride to think we've, we've achieved something that we haven't. Wash us today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, next decade, until you return, wash us in the good news of the gospel. And God, when trials come, when sins exist in our own lives and in our friends or our fellow church members, might we believe the gospel so that we can become a people that display your goodness to a world that is exhausted of religious duty. You are our one hope, God. Thank you that through Christ it is finished. In his name we pray, amen. As is our custom on Sundays, we'll take communion this morning as we sing a few closing songs. The communion elements are palpable reminders of the gospel for us. The bread represents the coming of the eternal son into human life as Jesus, the son of man, the son of God. The reason the bread is torn is because he was torn. He was broken. He was bruised. Why? Because God, in his infinite love, chose to do that to Jesus instead of to you. So by faith in that work, you can be cleansed, which is represented in the blood, cleansed from all your sin. Past, present, future, you're clean, like I told Aaron. Right? So listen, as a follower of Jesus, that's who this table is for, come boldly. Come as a son walking up to dad asking for dinner. Right? Dad, I'm hungry. When can I eat? Just come. The meal has been prepared for you. Come and take and eat and believe the gospel. It's such good news. It is finished. Amen.